Okay, uh, today, the coming of mass affluence uh, to the advanced economies, principally the economies of the West. Uh, Jennifer, speaking of informal property rights, I thought you owned a chair right up there. No, that's, I'm just kidding. Um, I'm going to take it in three chunks. We're going to look at big picture causal explanations for the rise of mass affluence and for explanations first for its rise and second for its rise beginning in Western Europe and North America. Uh, second, I'm going to uh, re re reintroduce the Joint Stock Corporation into that conversation. And finally, we're going to look at the phenomenon of mass affluence and the advertising culture of mid-20th century America. Then on Wednesday, we're going, to, we're going to descend to details. And the challenge for you in preparing for Wednesday is to imagine a country and imagine that uh, you somehow have been granted a fund amounting to 5% of its gross domestic product. And with that 5%, uh, you want to make whatever changes you can imagine will increase the overall wealth of that country uh, as much as possible. So it's a pragmatic question. It has a, it has a causal side to it. But ultimately, it's pragmatic. And it is not one size fits all. That is, you've got to know something about the country to know something about what needs doing. 5% of the GDP in Ghana will be uh, spent, will be wisely spent very differently than 5% of the GDP in Bolivia or Mexico or Norway. Okay, so. The first of the three topics is capitalist takeoff. Uh, the portrait of this corpulent and obvious, obviously affluent gent is Sir Richard Arkwright, who was the creator of the most efficient early textile machinery and who, unlike many others about whom Clark talks, actually profited very handsomely from that work. Uh, by takeoff in the West, and this goes back to the first day of class, and uh, by Wednesday we'll go back again to um, gapminder.org and look at the bubbles moving through space. Uh, this still photograph, so to speak, covers a, a, a longer time horizon, a 500-year time horizon, uh, and it shows a, an abrupt uh, northward movement in GDP per capita uh, in the U.S., uh, lagging a bit in Japan, uh, lagging further in China, India, and Indonesia. Uh, and if we just throw all the countries in the world in a pot, uh, we get a picture that looks something like this, uh, where uh, gross GDP is in blue, uh, population in green, and the one divided by the other in gold. 
And what we're interested in uh, from here to the end of term, really, is in understanding what lies behind these curves and in thinking about uh, from a given country's point of view or from a given class of people in a given country's point of view, uh, how, can we, how can we increase the rate uh, at which things get better? Now, before I go further, some of you are thinking green thoughts. Wave at me if you're thinking green thoughts and wondering whether it's really a good idea to have so many people with so much money in their pockets. Some of you, you Sasha, tell us. We got a, we got a mic here. Thanks, Morgan. Um, I think basically the root of all environmental problems, if you care about the natural environment, is that there are too many people. So you have more people who can consume more. The simple thing to think is that that's bad news for, for the Earth. Okay, so you would like to kill off a portion of the world's population? Yes. Okay, that's very straightforward. Good, clear MBA thinking. Um, so, and given a constant world population, if, if we had it, uh, would you prefer that that population on average be a little less affluent than it, than it is or than I seem, that I seem to want it to be? Um, I'm not sure that it's that straightforward because if people, societies don't have the means to advance technology, even though consumption does go up, you have cleaner technologies that would be developed with, with greater economic prosperity. So I'm, I'm not as clear on that one. Okay, not as clear. Now you would acknowledge that as hundreds of millions of uh, people living in places like China and India come into uh, income enough to have a family car or even two, that there's a challenge there. Certainly. Yeah. Okay, so let's keep the natural environment in the background as we talk about this, but let's for the moment focus on economics. And let's start with a curve like this. The, red, the, the curve shows low income to the left, high income to the right, and the frequency of each income stratum is indicated vertically. And the red curve is a fairly typical market economy income distribution with a truncated tail on the left and an elongated tail on the right. Uh, with the mean income being much higher than the median because it is pulled to the right by the very high incomes. Uh, if this chart were drawn to scale, that right-hand tail would probably be even more elongated, but wondrously thin uh, out, to the, out to the right. Well, the phenomenon of takeoff is the upward shift in that distribution. Uh, it may change shape a little, but it's not mainly that it's changing shape. It's that its mean is drifting upward and to the right. And if we think about two distributions, uh, two or three generations uh, removed from one another in a given 
society, let's say the United States 1920 and the United States today, uh, it will often be the case that the difference is so dramatic that the material condition of people living in the top tenth then will be about like the top half today. And you keep that up for ten generations or so, and you have something like this where the top decile in, uh, let's say, 1800 uh, is living in material conditions that would be equivalent to perhaps the ninth decile today. Not the very bottom, but people uh, living relatively near the bottom. Uh, and this is particularly true if you take into account not just, not just income, uh, but what it is that income can buy in the way of medical care, uh, comf comfort in lodging, uh, quality of diet, and so forth. So there's an enormous explosive change in the background here. And that change is our subject. Now how you feel about that change is more complicated. And we often hear that money doesn't buy happiness. Uh, the people who say that uh, have evidence of a kind. Uh, none of them volunteer to become poor. And there is something that money buys uh, that people want. And we'll return to that from time to time. But imagine now that there, just think about an economy with two people in it. Uh, A's uh, income or wealth is measured vertically, B's is measured horizontally. And you're Mr. A. Uh, which of these two outcomes would you prefer? On by one way of thinking, if you're maximizing your own income, you'd like to be there. Uh, if, on the other hand, what you're doing is staying ahead of the Joneses, uh, you'd like to be there. Uh, more generally, if you're just trying to maximize your own household income, you will have indifference curves like these horizontal ones and just seek to climb as high as possible. And you'll be perfectly content if others climb at the same rate or even a higher rate. Uh, on the other hand, you may be calculating the ratio of your household to other households that you choose to compare yourself with. And the indifference curves will then become raised from the origin, like that. And you will be trying to swing your position uh, from bottom right to upper left. So one function is just maximize one variable, and the other is maximize the ratio of two variables. And most people uh, are, tend to mix these two things. And the, their contentment with their uh, material position is partly relative and partly absolute. Absolute here, relative there. And if you, if you uh, think about uh, uh, the employees of a firm, the way they're compensated uh, is 
uh, raises both concerns. Suppose everybody in a law firm is making between $150,000 and $200,000. And along comes Jim Alexander, ace corporate lawyer. Never. Never, I know. I'm abusing you. Um, never. And, all right, Leslie Huff, ace corporate lawyer. And uh, we really need her. And we've got to pay her $800,000. And we make the offer and she takes it. Uh, there will be a, if this fact becomes public within the firm, which is quite likely, uh, everybody else will in some measure feel impoverished by it. She's making four times what I'm making. Surely she's not four times better than me. Right, and so the, the relative and the absolute are always at play. Now, uh, let's look through Clark's explanations. And I spent almost all of yesterday reviewing Clark. And he's kind of all over the place. There's some of everything in this book. But let's pick out uh, some of his uh, main explanations for economic takeoff and for the fact that uh, the takeoff occurred first and most dramatically in Western countries and uh, among Western countries first in uh, the United Kingdom. And his, there's a recurring theme, it's in uh, the beginning, the middle, and the end of the book, uh, about his speculative interpretation of um, wills from uh, England in uh, late medieval and early modern and, and, and right into modern times. And the phenomenon he finds is a fountain of well-born children who cannot replicate their parents' place in society. And the empirics on this are pretty strong, that, uh, that well-to-do families by and large had more than two surviving children uh, reaching, uh, more than two children reaching adulthood. Uh, and indeed the survival rate among well-to-do children was uh, quite a lot higher than the survival rate among other children. And if you read all the way to the end of the book, you discover that if you compare this with um, Asian societies such as Japan and China, uh, the effect is stronger uh, in England. And from this, he adduces um, several consequences, uh, the most obvious of which is that many of these well-born children will be downward mobiles. They will marry beneath their class. They will take up occupations or roles uh, beneath their parents' class. Uh, and Clark, Clark is, um, he's trying to say two things at once. One is that the culture, the universalization of culture from the top could in some measure be promoted by this downward mobility. That uh, children uh, raised with high expectations and, uh, uh, and uh, upbringing 
uh, may be cultural carriers, which would infuse lower economic strata with a uh, more energetic, uh, more performance-oriented uh, outlook. Uh, for that, there's no evidence in this story. It's just a speculation. Uh, and the other speculation, for which there is also no specific evidence, uh, is a Darwinian genetics story uh, in which, and here Clark is, uh, you know, this is dangerous territory in the way of uh, politics. Uh, he seems to believe that the genes carried at the top of the, of the income curve uh, may be better genes than those elsewhere in the income curve and that the downward, forced downward mobility of progeny from that uh, top-level gene pool uh, might upgrade the whole society in a genetic sense. Um, anybody want to comment on that thought? Yes. I mean, genetically speaking, it's just sort of silly because traits don't pass directly. You aren't a clone of your parents or even just a 50-50 combo. In terms of carrying skills downward, though, I mean, that makes a lot of sense. If you're well-educated and you bring that down, you might educate your children, yeah. values, et cetera. Okay. Uh, that's, my, that's precisely my own view. But uh, does anybody want to defend Clark here? It could, it could be more of a bell curve situation, if you know what, if you know what I mean. That the people the, the, on the higher end of the, the, um, the income ladder have, over time, um, been privy to better situations and better selection pressures, leading to the evolution of skills like, I don't know, analytical thinking, intelligence skills that are necessary for the the professions that are characteristic of the higher classes. Okay. Um, let's, let's, let's have a vote here. How many people think it's likely that there is some validity to, let's start with the cultural story and then go to the genetic story. How many people find the cultural story broadly plausible? And, and the opposite, implausible? Okay, and how many find the genetic story broadly plausible? Fewer, but a substantial number. And how many find it implausible? Okay, um, I have no idea, and Clark provides not one shred of evidence with which we could test this. Um, my own guess is that a few hundred years is a pretty short time for carrying out the, the kind of selection process he has in mind. Um, it's also the case that the association between um, parental, um, uh, let's call it IQ, the twin studies actually do confirm this, that where identical twins are born to Miss, Mr. and Mrs. Smith and raised by Mr. and Mrs. Jones, in IQ and several other variables, the association between the identicals will be greater than between them and the siblings belonging to the new family. So genetics is not wholly out of the picture. 
Uh, on the other hand, from a pragmatic point of view, which is where we're going with all this, uh, the idea of, well, what was eugenics? Does anybody, have any of you in a history course picked up eugenics? Anyone? Back, back with the mic here. an idea that uh, in some form has existed since ancient times, but really picked up in the late 19th century and then especially under the uh, Third Reich, where it was essentially believed that people at the top tended to have better genes, or in the case of the Third Reich, a specific racial group, and therefore you want to maximize the number of people with certain desirable traits who are reproducing and minimize the ability of people with undesirable traits to reproduce, resulting in a better, stronger, smarter, in the case of the Nazis, blonder race. Okay. Uh, that's, that's the gist of it. Um, it had the, the part of it which was most influential had to do with um, trying to prevent um, uh, people who were mentally retarded from reproducing. And, um, and a lot of that happened. Um, the vulgar prejudices that lay behind much of it it was, much of it was con conducted by something called the Vineland Institute, located near Princeton, New Jersey. No guilt by association there. Um, and the Vineland Institute published data showing that all the immigrant groups streaming into the US in the early 20th century uh, were inferior to wasps, mentally. And th they were very tough on the Jews. The Jews are just not bright at all. And they did this by administering English language questionnaires to immigrants just after they got here. Um, the pragmatics of culture are something that's a lot easier to deal with and which fits more readily into the humanistic framework uh, that we share. Um, after that, after the, the fountain, which really doesn't fit in any of his categories, Clark has three broad categories. One is exogenous growth theories. Exogenous meaning economic growth caused by something that, is, um, that has its origin outside uh, the market economy. And uh, one of these ideas, which I think he's right about, uh, he doesn't run with it very far, but the emergence of the nation state system, the rule of law, um, the existence of uh, well-formalized property rights, all that stuff uh, is pretty powerful. Uh, and the Western world was the initial focal point of the Westphalian nation-state system. Uh, Clark is at pains to show that that by itself isn't enough of an explanation. And in general, no one should expect one story to explain the evolution of capitalist wealth. This is way too complex a story, way too complex a phenomenon for uh, simple theories to carry the day. A special case of that would be wealth maximizing law as illustrated a week ago in Gen versus Rich uh, or in uh, US versus Cosby or any of hundreds of uh, legal precedents. Uh, Clark also um, briefly toward the end of the book takes up the work of a guy named Kenneth Pomerantz. And Pomerantz has a book called The Great Divergence, which 
asks the question, uh, why did the, well, he begins with the proposition that from a social and economic point of view, China uh, and Japan both looked a lot like Europe uh, in about 1800. And there's lots to quibble with in that generalization, but it's not crazy. And then he says, well, Europe takes off uh, well over a century ahead of those Asian countries. And uh, he wants to know why. And his thesis is that it has to do with natural resources. And in particular, that large population centers like the cities of England were located close to large energy resources such as the coal mining areas of the Midlands in the United Kingdom. Uh, and also uh, of almost equal importance for Pomerantz, uh, access to vast agricultural land in the form of North America. And that about 1800 was the time when the exploitation of the largely empty continent in the United States uh, was feeding resources into Western Europe. And there's some plausibility in those ideas. Uh, then Clark talks about multiple equilibrium theories. And the idea here is, think of time passing that way and standard of living or productivity going this way. And the idea is that uh, a country could climb this small hill and get stuck here, and then there'd be some exogenous shock, some huge event outside the economic system, which would allow it to pass from that equilibrium to a new equilibrium on top of the taller hill. And the world demographic transition is such a story and not a crazy story at all. The notion that the falling death rate uh, created by better public health, probably more than any single factor by clean water, uh, and elementary vaccinations, but clean water probably above all else, uh, and the eventual adjustment of the birth rate to that so that you go from high birth rate, high death rate, short lives, to low birth rate, low death rate, long lives. Uh, that by itself is, a, is, I think without question, a powerful element uh, in the story wherever a nation state society uh, has got, gone from poor to uh, rich. Then the endogenous growth theories, and these are, I, this, the idea here is that something happens inside the economy that creates a dynamic change, and that dynamic change uh, leads uh, to uh, mass affluence. And I think there's a lot in this idea. Um, which of course is not Clark's. Clark is merely cataloging other people's ideas. And uh, does anybody recognize either of these two handsome gentlemen? I prefer the haircut on the left. 
this is Joseph Schumpeter, uh, and this is F.A. Hayek. And each of them uh, had an idea about market societies that has to be central to our thinking. Uh, in Schumpeter's case, it was creative destruction. And I'm told by the teaching fellows that most of you knew that quite well on the midterm. Um, and creative destruction uh, is, is a way of reshuffling the deck economically at short intervals so that looking back at this story, so that sitting still on this hill is difficult for, for any given firm and arguably impossible for society at large once you're into a capitalist market economy. Uh, one way to diagram that is um, this diagram we have the capital invested in a given kind of product or production uh, rising from left to right and the productivity of that capital rising uh, from uh, bottom to top. And each of these curves is a, is a production function uh, representing a technology and a way of organizing people uh, and handling information. And the idea would be that change occurs in the sequence one, two, three, four, five, six here, where there's a process of climbing to the right as we go to more capital intensive production, more capital per worker. Uh, and then while uh, Tal is doing that, uh, Jennifer is saying, well, no, we should reorganize this entirely. We should use a different technology, a different method of attracting investments, a different method of compensating employees. And she shifts to the lower end of three and then that gets carried to here and then a similar shift uh, to the blue production function and then up that. And so a kind of zigzag story of change where uh, people compete not within one production function but with, between production functions and a chaotic pattern of creative destruction occurs. What makes it creative is that it is ultimately an upward movement in productivity. And a version of that story is in Clark, uh, but he doesn't really think uh, in the dynamic way that Schumpeter and Hayek and others do. Hayek's story is the one about the creative potential of a free society, which I think you had a memo to write about. And the notion there uh, is that social learning will accrue, that the society at large will have a higher learning rate than any individual within it. And that as each of us goes about her or his uh, work, we are spewing off uh, insights for others, both when we succeed and when we fail. When we succeed, people will copy our ideas. When we fail, people will know an idea not to try. And that 
over time, uh, society actually smartens up. And if you look at the first chapter in the assignment for today in Clark, he has uh, all the factors of growth as he conceives them in a very simplified model. And the residual, the residual, which accounts for about half the variance, uh, its most natural interpretation is it is social learning. It isn't the specific capital embodied in a given worker's education or in the factory plant and equipment with which that worker is supplied by an employer, uh, but in the less tangible forms of social knowledge which the society is generating. And Hayek's idea then is that over time, social learning uh, makes the whole system smarter, taken as a whole. And that learning to navigate unfamiliar information, which uh, arguably would be something you're all doing right now, uh, becomes uh, not only an advantage to the individual, uh, but to the society at large. Well, the most glaring omission in Clark in talking about the surge of wealth in the West is the Joint Stock Corporation. And the Joint Stock Corporation goes back, of course, many centuries. Uh, but the kind of jo Joint Stock Corporation which has become uh, dominant in the world uh, goes back only to about the middle of the 1800s. Um, in the UK, it's dated to the Corporation Act of 1862. Uh, in the US, I think you'd probably say somewhere in the 1840s it becomes important. You can find legal traces of it much earlier in, in, in both cases, but it gets to be a big deal in the middle years of the 19th century. And as we saw with the reading from uh, uh, Alfred, uh, Alfred Chandler, uh, the rise of the large-scale uh, railroad in the U.S. provoked the creation of the equity and bond markets in New York uh, and the uh, feverish development of joint stock corporations in virtually every field of endeavor uh, thereafter. Uh, these slides, I'm going to show a series of proprietary slides constructed by uh, Ibbotson Associates. Ibbotson Associates is named for Roger Ibbotson at the School of Management here. Uh, Ibbotson became uh, filthy rich by uh, being the first one to systematically uh, compile, analyze, and sell long-trend data about uh, stocks and bonds. And it's only because he likes to teach that he bothers to continue. Uh, the time scale here is 1925 to more or less the present. Uh, and the uh, uh, earnings of various uh, classes of assets are uh, traced here, uh, beginning in this case with treasury bills. Uh, issued by the government, and as safe as the government uh, is. Uh, then municipal bonds, 
uh, government bonds of other kinds, corporate bonds, so a, that th this would be debt taken on uh, by a corporation, and it might be, they might be junk bonds if the corporation is a little risky, and they might be blue chip bonds if not. And then uh, this is the blue curve is an amalgam of stock returns. And in every case, we start with $1 in 1925 and keep investing the money. The, the way these charts are, are generated is um, we assume that every dollar of dividend is plowed back uh, and that we don't pay any taxes. So this would sort of be Yale that we're charting. You and I wouldn't quite have the same tax privilege Yale has. And the most striking thing there is, what's the most striking thing about that chart? First of all, there is some magic in compound interest, right? You can just leave your money to grow. It really does eventually do that. But how about the blue curve versus the others? Pretty startling. We've got to get somebody else to, yes, tall. There, there seems to be a rather large equity premium. Okay. Um, what, what I mean by that is that there seems to be uh, excess returns if you put your money in stocks versus any of the other categories, treasuries, corporate bonds. Okay. Um, I mean, you're obviously taking on more risk right. in stocks versus the other categories, certainly more than treasury bills, but um, you could possibly argue that the difference in risk uh, doesn't seem as great as a difference in returns over the long run. Okay. and. Uh, what's the standard, the equity premium is the punchline here, well said. And what's the standard way one might manage the risk of a portfolio? Uh, you could diversify. Okay, so we wouldn't put all our money in mining stocks or in, uh, even in Apple, um, which is right now one of the most expensive stocks in the universe. Um, but the equity premium is huge. And look here what happens. This is 1925. The depression is here. The great crash is here. Uh, these people got jolted, right? And of course, the temptation when that happens to you is to imagine that it's going to go right to the middle of the earth and therefore to sell at this point, which lots and lots of people did. And of course, the effect was uh, to ruin uh, their wealth. Let's take another set of these. Uh, we've, we let inflation uh, go unnoticed in that one. And here we'll show inflation by the red curve. And then um, the T-bills, government bonds, large company stocks, small company stocks. And you get a huge premium there. Now, the, the, back to the question of, of the accumulation of mass affluence, the power of large enterprise to generate uh, enormous wealth over long periods, right? This is a 
a 75, 80, 85 year period we're looking at. Uh, but patient, money patiently invested in joint stock corporations uh, is a solid strategy uh, for the accumulation of wealth within a given household uh, or uh, institutional portfolio. Uh, it's not anywhere near the sexiest or the fastest way, uh, but it is uh, one of the most solid ways. And the only conclusion I want to get out of this is that in talking about economic takeoff and the sustained uh, growth in mass affluence, uh, companies, joint stock companies with limited liability are a big part of that. Third and last, uh, with, remember the variable here is gross domestic product per capita. And part of that uh, has to do with the propensity to, to consume. And in the Posner book about what went wrong with the mortgage markets, uh, Keynes, uh, Lord, Lord Keynes is mentioned, and Keynesian economics, which are, uh, which are directed to the question of stabilizing mass demand for products uh, so that the economy keeps going around and around, uh, is an important element. Well, the joint stock corporation was, uh, from its birth, really good at selling. And the move, which would be called forward integration, we're not just going to make cigarettes, we're going to sell cigarettes. We're not just going to make soap, we're going to sell soap. We're not just going to make cars, we're going to sell them. Uh, that forward integration, I'm, I'm going to, without comment now, just show you uh, 20 slides from the middle decades of the 20th century, and then we'll stop briefly and segue to next, our next meeting. Some of these are a little pernicious. This one is not. Uh, the, the, a repeated trope is using products to solve marital problems. And the large glove compartment on this mercury uh, will solve the marital problem between these two. When my uh, grandfather died and I was 17, I inherited a mercury from him. It lasted one year before I crashed it. Quiet substance. There's a series of palm olives here. They all have to do with men and women. Women are the sales target.
Does palm olive soap exist still? Does anybody use it? That's pretty nasty stuff, right? <laughs> this is rouge, not soap now. You get the gist of it. Um, so in the consumer culture that's embodied in these and which is uh, powerful, powerfully represented all around us, right? we live in a very consumption-oriented culture, uh, is, in, is arguably uh, a misleading a misleadingly favorable aspect of wealth. That is an awful lot of, if you think about those ads and, and how silly uh, it seems in, with 70 years hindsight that using palm olive soap will save your marriage. My offhand guess is that it didn't save a single marriage. Um, that whole angle of kind of the hucksterish aspect of a capitalist society uh, can give one pause. Now, I'd like you to come to class Wednesday having thought a little about a country and what 5% of its GDP would amount to in dollars. And if you need to look that up, you, know, you can Google it. The easiest Google is uh, CIA Factbook. Uh, but the World Bank will give you the data too, the World Bank or um, uh, the WTO. There are all kinds of organizations that produce these data. Pick a country and think about 5% and think about how you would deploy the 5% uh, if you wanted to maximize the expected wealth of that society over, let's say, a 20-year future. Uh, the reading is the more policy-oriented part of DeSoto, and it should in some ways guide and support uh, your thinking, although you surely want to think well beyond uh, DeSoto's framework. So I'll see you on Wednesday. <laughs>